invite you to open up your Bibles to Galatians chapter 2. Galatians chapter 2. Got to say, I really appreciate the, uh, the hymns that have been led uh, today, this morning and this evening. Some of my favorite hymns uh, have been led so far. I haven't heard that hymn in quite some time, and I just appreciate Brother Derek leading us in that. Um, I think it's an encouraging uh, song that we can sing. <clears throat> it's just been uh, good to be able to be with you all like usual every Lord's Day and to be able to sing praises to him, to worship him, and to think more about him. Um, if you are over in Galatians chapter 2, and if you don't have a Bible with you, make sure you grab a, uh, one from the pew in front of you or just get on the digital Bible on your phone. Um, I really want to focus on just one verse here, and it's a verse that I think is so incredibly striking. There's, there's so much um, impact and, and really just so many applications I think you can get from just this one verse alone. And that's in Galatians chapter 2 and verse 20. But before we actually read that, I want to get the context of what's happening here. In Galatians chapter 2, what Paul begins talking about is, especially when you get towards the middle of the chapter, chapter he begins talking about another Christian, another apostle. And he begins talking about Peter. And really, even though Peter had been baptized, and even though he, he was an apostle, he was not acting like a Christian. In fact, because of the sin of hypocrisy that he was engaged in, he was leading many other Christians into the same hypocrisy. He, was lead, he even led someone like Barnabas into hypocrisy, a son of encouragement. Uh, and that is pretty interesting that that could ever even happen. Now... With that being said, in light of this, Paul tells us, I think, what the solution is to this kind of hypocrisy in verse 20. In Galatians chapter 2, in verse 20, Paul says, I have been crucified with Christ, and it is no longer I who live, but Christ lives in me. And the life which I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God, who loved me and gave himself up for me. Now, again, that's about all the context we're going to get into of Galatians chapter 2 uh, for tonight. And really what I want to do, as I've already said, is just focus on this one verse. We're going to break this down into four different um, points. But in each point, what I want to make the case of is like Paul, like Peter, we also must and are required to strive to crucify the flesh. And live in Christ. Now, as we think about that, what does this verse reveal about how a Christian is to do that? How does this verse define a Christian's life and what it should look like? Well, first of all, I think it uh, is defined by really a Christian's commitment. You see at the very beginning of the verse, he talks about being crucified. What does it mean to be crucified with Christ? Well, just a couple hopefully simple uh, things to say about that. First of all, it is a denial. It's, it is a denial of ourselves. And I think really this is the culmination of what it means to be crucified with Christ. Because what we're doing is making a choice that I'm no longer going to be walking in the way I once was. I'm no longer going to be taking myself as the sole authority. Over in Matthew chapter 16, Matthew chapter 16 and verse 24, um, it's interesting um, what, what Jesus says in this passage here in Matthew chapter 16. Uh, and it's also a very familiar passage. 
and for good reason. He says to his disciples, if anyone wishes to come after me, he must deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. Now, I believe that this is within the same context as what you find in verses 21 through 23. In verse 21 and through 23, Jesus is basically speaking to his disciples about what is to come, and that is in his own cross and the death that he was going to suffer, and even the resurrection. Now, as they are hearing this, Peter takes him aside, and it says that Peter rebukes the Lord, which is just something to think about. In verse 22, he says, God forbid it, Lord, this shall never happen to you. But Jesus turned and said to Peter in verse 23, Get behind me, Satan. You are a stumbling block to me, for you are not setting your mind on God's interests, but man's. And I think when you get to verse 24, it, it, it is still within the same context. What does he get into right after that? That if anyone wishes to come after me, he must deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. What does that look like? Well, what it looks like is we're going to start putting God's interests over our own. We're going to start making God's interests our own. That's one of the ways that we deny self. Is that we decide that we are not going to continue to take my own soul standard as, as, as the rule of life. I'm going to come to this and this alone. Well, not only that, but it also means a death. Now, when we say death, when the Bible says death, it, I think it's what it means. It's, it's, not, it, it's not really, I don't think it's just talking about, you know, just some interesting platitude, some hypothetical down the road. No, it really means what it says when it says that something needs to die. In Romans chapter 6, I think Paul makes... A very good point with regards to this as he speaks about death and how a Christian is related to death. In Romans chapter 6, as he talks about those who have been baptized into Christ, beginning in verse 3, he says, Or do you not know that all of us who have been baptized into Christ Jesus have been baptized into his death? Therefore we have been buried with him through baptism into death, so that as Christ was raised from the dead through the glory of the Father, so we too might walk in newness of life. For if we have become united with him in the likeness of his death, certainly we shall also be in the likeness of his resurrection. Knowing this, that our old self was crucified with him in order that our body of sin might be done away with so that we would no longer be slaves to sin. For he who has died is free from sin. So before we even move on, just recognize that I think even here we, we see back to what it was talking about in Matthew 16 about denying ourselves. The old man, he's being put away completely. Skipping down in Romans chapter 6, in verse 11, it says, Even so, consider yourselves to be dead to sin, but alive to God in Christ Jesus. Therefore, do not let sin reign in your mortal body, so that you obey its lusts. And do not go on presenting the members of your body to sin as instruments of unrighteousness, but present yourselves to God as those alive from the dead, and your members as instruments of righteousness to God. For sin shall not be master over you, for you are not under law, but under grace. And so what is Paul saying? Well, very clearly, this is death. It is to be put to death. You therefore no longer act like you used to. You no longer act like a sinner. You act like you belong to God. And, when, and so he's not saying, well, you, you, you try to hide from this, that you, every now and then you can dabble in this. He says, it's completely cut off. It's dead. So when you think about that, someone may look at the gospel, they may look at what Jesus has to say as he brings this good news, and maybe this individual is a raging alcoholic, 
And now they decide, well, I'm going to become a Christian. Well, now what does this mean for me, uh, especially with regards to this really bad habit that I have and this sin that God says needs to be put to death? Well, now that I've become a Christian, now uh, I'm, I, I don't get blackout drunk every night, but, but I just moderately drink. Is that what God wanted? That we just, in moderation, consume. No, this is a death. It's put away. It's cut off completely. The alcoholic now becomes completely sober. That's what death means. We don't dabble in this. We're not just merely trying to hide from this. It's gone. It's done. You think about the man or woman, the young man or woman who's uh, engaged in many uh, relationships uh, in, in their adventures. They're just a very promiscuous person and they uh, just strive to have several different sexual relationships. Well, now they become a Christian and instead of doing that, no longer are they just going to you know, give themselves to whoever may come uh, into their uh, path. But now that they're a Christian, here's someone that they love that they're dating. And they say, well, we're probably going to get married in the long run anyway. We do love each other. So you know what? Because I'm a Christian, it, it's okay. Because, you know, I love her. And it's fine. Now we, we get to engage in this. Is that what the scriptures teach? Is that what the gospel teaches us? That, you know what, as long as you're not overdoing it, well, you still get to engage in sin. No. It's put to death. It's cut off. No more. And so the one who has given themselves <laughs> without any restraint to these kinds of uh, lust of the flesh and this passion, now you put it to death. Now you're abstinent. And now you keep yourself pure until marriage. And if you don't get married, you keep yourself so that's what it means when he says crucified with Christ. It's not a dabbling in. It is you are, you are done with it. No longer is this a part of your life. No longer is this coming into your mind. And if it does, what do you do? Bury it where it belongs. Keep it in the grave. So I think that's what... Uh, he, I think that's one of the things that we see in Galatians 2 and verse 20 when you think about a Christian's commitment. But I also think it begins to talk about a Christian's purpose. Not only are we, does he say that we are to be crucified with Christ, but he says Christ lives in me. What does this look like if Christ lives in me? Well, first of all, in Romans chapter 8, uh, Romans chapter 8, if you're still in Romans, just turn a page over. In verse 29, look at what Paul says here. For those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to become conformed to the image of his son, so that he would be the firstborn among many brethren. Now, when he says conformed to his image, what do you think that means? I don't think it means, well... We're going to put just a few characteristics of Jesus into our lives. And, you know, as long as we have just a few, I mean, we don't have to do everything. We don't have to, we don't have to just, you know, immerse ourselves in this. As long as we just put a few, we're fine. No, when he says that you are conformed to this image, it means you're trying to put every characteristic on. You are trying to embody the attitude, the mindset that Christ had that we were reading about in Philippians chapter 2 this morning. Everything that he showed, everything that he embodies, I want to embody. If Christ truly does live in me. If he is truly the one making the decisions. No longer Luke making the decisions. It's Christ in me. Now, when you think about that, how we are trying to look more like him every day. Conforming to his image is not just putting things off. But it is putting things on. Uh, as we were just indicating in Romans chapter 8. Over in Colossians chapter 3. Colossians chapter 3. <clears throat> I think this is a very, very um, powerful passage. 
Again, it begins very similarly to Romans chapter 6. He says in verse 1, Therefore, if you have been raised up with Christ, keep seeking the things above. And so those who have been baptized, those who have put the old man to death, what does that look like? Well, he begins talking in the first half of chapter 3 about the things that were supposed to be put away with that old man. He talks about malice and deceit, passion, evil desire, greed, which amounts to idolatry, immorality, all of these earthly and worldly attitudes. All of those are to be put to death. And so we understand that, that we have to put the old man away. But then you get to verse 10, and he starts talking about the things that you must put on deliberately and actively. In verse 10, it says that you have put on the new self who is being renewed to a true knowledge according to the image of the one who created him. And so here what you have is just the continual notion of being created in his image. Every single one of us have been created in the image of God. Every single one who is a Christian is being recreated into that pure image of Jesus. It is not just that initial uh, creation in God's image, but now we are trying to create ourselves and fashion our, or shape ourse ourselves to that image of Christ. Skipping over to verse 12, he says, So as those who have been chosen of God, holy and beloved, put on a heart of compassion, kindness, humility, gentleness, and patience, bearing with one another and forgiving each other, whoever has a complaint against anyone, just as the Lord forgave you, so also should you. Beyond all these things, put on love, which is the perfect bond of unity. So what exactly does he say that you need to put on to look like Christ? He doesn't just mention one thing or two things, or three things, he mentions a lot of things. And I don't feel comfortable saying, well, as long as you have just a few of these things, well, minus one, that, that doesn't matter. If Christ lives in me, I'm going to show every single one of these to the best of my ability. And I'm not going to be happy or satisfied until I look more like him. And I'm not going to be satisfied if one of these things is lacking. If they are, I'm going to work hard to make sure it doesn't continue lacking. So maybe... You're someone who already is a Christian. Maybe you've been baptized, like Paul, who is uh, uh, talking in Galatians chapter 2. And maybe you're just thinking to yourself, you know, I'm, I'm just not a people person. Well, Christ lives in me, so what does that mean I'm going to show? First of all, it means I'm going to be evangelistic. Yes, I may not be a people person, but that doesn't matter because Christ's mission was to spread the gospel to others. And so if Christ lives in me, what does that mean my mission is? It, well, it doesn't mean, oh, I'm not going to do anything. It doesn't mean I don't have any responsibility. It means get to work. Not only that, but with the brethren, our brothers and sisters in Christ, we're going to be evangelistic, but we're also going to be encouraging one another. Yes, I, I understand that not everyone is, is so easily uh, uh, inclined to being social as others. I understand that. There are some people who just do a lot better job than that. They, they're more naturally social. I'm not saying you have to be one, just the most social person in the world. But if Christ lives in me, it doesn't matter if I'm social or not. My mission is to encourage the brother or sister who may need encouraging, who's been discouraged recently. And I'm going to try and continually lift them up. And I'm going to continually try to help them grow in Christ. That's my mission. Why? Not because Luke lives and is making the decisions because Christ lives in me. You may be someone who has just been converted or maybe, maybe you've been a Christian for some time and you can remember a group of people that you associated with that were just ungodly people. 
what happens when you become a Christian? Do you continue to make the same dirty jokes? Do you continue to go along the same mindset and in the same conversations that really have no place, that are not seasoned with salt whatsoever, have no place on the tongue of a Christian? If Christ lives in me, I'm no longer going to participate in those things. In fact, if Christ lives in me, I'm no longer going to give favor to those groups. Who do I give favor to now? The family of God. The one that Christ gave himself for. Now they have my preference. But that's, that's only if Christ lives in me. And so we need to ask ourselves as we go through this verse, does he live in me? Have I crucified the flesh? Or have I been baptized but I allowed the old man to stay? Because that's not going to do it. Well, not only that, but I think this verse talks about a Christian's direction. He, he says that this notion that you see all throughout the Bible, this notion of living by faith, but what does living by faith mean? <clears throat> and what does it look like? Well, there's a couple examples that I think we can see specifically in Abraham. <clears throat> in 2 Corinthians chapter 5 and verse 7, what does Paul say? But that we walk by faith, not by sight. Is Paul saying that we are just walking by blind faith, that we are doing everything, making every choice, coming to every single conclusion, just because, you know what, we're just closing our eyes and, and we're just going to take a blind leap of faith. That's not what Paul is saying. Regardless of what many uh, scholarly secularists would say. We, we don't believe in a blind faith. We have reason for our faith. And, and living by faith means that we follow God even though maybe we don't see exactly where that's leading. Does that mean it's a blind faith? No. But look in Hebrews chapter 11. Hebrews chapter 11, again, as you see Abraham specifically being mentioned. Hebrews chapter 11 and verse 8. It says, By faith Abraham, when he was called, obeyed by going out to a place which he was to receive for an inheritance. And he went out, <clears throat> excuse me, and he went out not knowing where he was going. Verse 9, by faith he lived as an alien in the land of promise, as in a foreign land, dwelling in tents with Isaac and Jacob, fellow heirs of the same promise. For he was looking for the city which has foundations, whose architect and builder is God. Did Abraham know where he was going to go? No. But he knew who he was following. And sometimes that's all me and you get. We don't get to know, kind of like Job, what the whole picture is. Oh, how that would have helped Job. To know that God said that he has basically picked Job out as an example to, to the adversary to say, there's, there's no one like him. <clears throat> he didn't get to see that. He didn't hear that conversation. And guess what? We don't get to either. We may not know where this road is headed. We may not know why we have to suffer all these things that we have to suffer. But... We know who we're following, and we know that we can trust Him. Um, and so living by faith means that we follow God even though we may not see where exactly that is heading, at least on earth. We know where we're going in the long run, should we be faithful. <clears throat> well, not only do we have that example of Abraham, but still in Hebrews chapter 11, living by faith also means that we are, we have, we'll have a willingness to follow God even though we don't see not just where, but the why. In Hebrews chapter 11, in verse 17, it says, By faith Abraham, when he was tested, offered up Isaac, and he who had received the promises was offering up his only begotten son. It was he to whom it was said, In Isaac your descendants shall be called. He considered that God is able to raise people even from the dead, from which he also received him back as a type. Did Abraham 
as well. <laughs> like we were talking about with Job, did, did he get the full rundown of why God was doing this? No. And he didn't... This was the son of promise. It's not like Abraham was tricked or Abraham was confused about this. Maybe he's not. No, he knew that this was the son of promise. And God had delivered on that, that promise that he had made initially when he gave uh, Isaac to Abraham and, and Isaac and uh, Sarah bore him. And now, what is God saying? You need to sacrifice him. What I love about Genesis 22 is that it doesn't look like Abraham for a moment, for a moment, doubts God. And you get to Hebrews chapter 11, and you see he absolutely didn't. He had the mindset that, yes, Isaac is going to die. I don't know why he has to, but he must, because God says so. And he did, and he did so, trusting in God, knowing that even God could bring people back from the dead. But again, Abraham couldn't see the full picture. What's interesting is that never stopped him. Should it stop us? Should it stop you if you're truly living by faith? No. If I'm really living by faith, not seeing the where, not seeing the why, that's not going to stop me. And so maybe you're a Christian and you don't see the need why God has this commandment to assemble together. Maybe you don't see the need. Either way, it doesn't matter because in Hebrews chapter 10 and verse 25, it's clear we are not to forsake the assembly. But beyond that, living by faith means I'm going to trust God and, and, and realize that there is benefit even though I may not feel it. Because let me tell you, sometimes, sometimes we as Christians will come, but we don't, we don't necessarily know. The, it's just hard right now, right? And sometimes there are doubts that creep in. Sometimes there are just hardships that come into our lives, and we are coming to the assembly. At least we're here, but at the time we're just thinking, I really don't know how this is going to help me today, how this is really going to help me get to tomorrow. But if we're living by faith, like Abraham, we're going to trust God. I may not see why God tells me to be a servant like we were talking about earlier this morning, especially even to those who hurt me, those who may be an enemy to me. But if I'm living by faith, I'm going to serve them to the best of my ability. Like we were talking about this morning. I may not see why, why maybe some brother or sister uh, you know, has a specific opinion about something and something violates their conscience. I don't know why maybe this bothers them so much, but living by faith means that if it's something that I can suffer, if it's a liberty that I can get rid of for their sake, if I'm living by faith, then I think I'm willing to suffer that. I'm not going to sit there and say, well, this is my liberty, this is my right, and you know what, you're just going to have to deal with it. Oh, how Christ-like. No. If Christ lives in me, if I'm living by faith, I'm going to trust God. I'm going to trust His commandments, even though I may not fully understand why. Finally, I think the ultimate uh, reason why we can do all of this, because it's not necessarily easy to crucify the flesh. It's not easy to put the old man away all the time, and especially to keep him away. Because that old man is always striving to get back, take the reins again, have the power, make the choices once again instead of Christ. It's not easy to do that. And it's not always easy to have Christ live in me and make every single decision. And to always have that same level of faith and trust that Abraham did. But why do we do all of this? <clears throat> Ultimately because Jesus loved me and gave himself up for me. As Paul says at the very end of Galatians chapter 2 and verse 20. You want to turn to 1 John chapter 4. 
First John chapter 4, in verse 19, a very small sentence. First John chapter 4, in verse 19, he says, We love because he first loved us. You could go to Romans chapter 5 and you could see how Jesus loved us while we were sinners, while we were his enemies, while we were the ones, the reasons that he had to be put up on the cross. You could go to Isaiah chapter 53 and you could see how Jesus was that suffering servant and he didn't have to do any of that. You can go to passage after passage after passage after passage seeing how Jesus didn't have to do any of this, didn't deserve any of this. He went through so much more shame and mocking and, and, and pain and death that he absolutely did not deserve, that he absolutely did not have to accept, but he willfully did. Why did he do it? Because he loved us. And so I just want to ask the question, with that in mind, do you love him? I think that there are some Christians who have given themselves to Christ. Maybe it's been some time since you started that relationship, since, it's been, since that relationship has been affirmed. The covenant has been uh, affirmed. And I think that there are some Christians who, uh, especially the longer you are alive, you go through a lot more hardships and a lot more things that shake your faith. I think sometimes uh, we can struggle with answering this question. I think everybody would immediately, knee-jerk response, say, of course, of course I love Jesus. But do you show it? In this same epistle, what does John say but that, listen, his, his commandments are not burdensome to those who love him. But do you sometimes think that the commandments God gives you are burdensome and they're just in the way? You might struggle with love for Him. Not just for anybody, but for Him. I, I, and I'm not saying, I don't want to indicate at all that that means that you're in just a, a, an impossible situation. But what I think that means is we have to go back a few steps. Have you... Have you Notice the things that we have said we had to do at the beginning of Galatians chapter 2 and verse 20. All the things, all the steps we have to take. This is the reason we want to do this. But I think sometimes we have to begin the process to, to root out the reasons why we don't love him. Because ultimately those things have crept back in and they have choked out that love that we first had. And so do we struggle with loving him? I, ultimately, I would ask it like this. Is there something that you're not willing to do? Especially in light of the sacrifice that he gave you. There shouldn't be anything that we're not willing to do. There shouldn't be one thing that we look at and say, that's too difficult for me. There shouldn't be one thing that we look at and say, that's not worth it to me. <laughs> I can't imagine anyone coming to me, threatening my wife, and, and me looking at that man and saying, uh, I mean, I love her, but I don't think she's worth that much suffering. If I thought that, I don't deserve her. If we think that about Jesus, certainly we don't deserve him. And I can't imagine that we could be in a right relationship with him. But ultimately, I think when you look at the sacrifice that he makes, especially in light of the fact that he didn't have to, it really does move the soul. <laughs> it moves the heart. It touches us to realize he did this because he loved me. And even when I wasn't mindful of him. So the question tonight is, do you want to start being mindful of him? Are you willing to love him back 
after all the things that he has done for you and give yourself over to him. What do we mean by giving ourselves over to him? It means everything that we've just discussed. You're going to put everything away that he says to put away. You're going to crucify the flesh. You're going to start letting him make the decisions. It is no longer Luke wants or Luke desires. It is Christ wills and Christ desires. That's how I make my decisions. And it is no longer I, 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 I'm going to make all of my decisions and I'm going to base all of my uh, notions and opinions on what I can see. No. It's based upon what has God established as the truth. Because His Word and His Word alone is truth. Are you willing to do all of those things? I'm not saying it's going to be easy, but I will say, if you are, you're ready. Are you a Christian that maybe has lost your way and feel like you, you need to make things right with him? If you could answer uh, positively to the previous questions, you're ready. If you're not a Christian and you want to start that relationship with Christ, and like I said just a moment ago, if you can answer those questions positively that you are ready to do these things, you are ready. Why do you wait? If we can assist you in becoming a Christian, becoming right with God this very evening, please let your need be made known. Come forward and as we stand and as we sing.